Listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Weird Era, the podcast where we ask the right questions. Today, I am joined by Paola Ferrante to discuss her short story collection, Her Body Among Animals. Paola Ferrante is a writer living with depression. Her debut poetry collection, What to Wear When Surviving a Lion Attack, was shortlisted for the Gerald Lampert Memorial Award. She has won Grain Magazine's Short Grain Contest for Poetry, the New Quarterly's Peter Hinchcliffe, Short Fiction Award, Room Magazine's Fiction Contest, and was long listed for the 2020 Journey Prize for the story When Foxes Die Electric. Her work appears in After Realism, 24 Stories for the 21st Century, Best Canadian Poetry 2021, North American Review, Prism International, and elsewhere. She was born and still resides in Toronto. In this genre-bending debut collection merging horror, fairy tales, pop culture, and sci-fi, women challenge the boundaries placed on their bodies while living in a world, quote, among animals, where violence is intertwined with bizarre ecological disruptions. A sentient sex robot goes against her programming, a grad student living with depression is weighed down by an ever-present albatross, an unhappy wife turns into a spider, a boy with a dark secret is haunted by dolls, a couple bound for a colony on Mars take a road trip through Texas, a girl fights to save her sister from growing a mermaid tail like their absent mother. Magical yet human, haunted and haunting, these stories act as a surreal documentation of the mistakes and systems of the past that remain very much in the present. Fronte investigates toxic masculinity and the devastation it enacts upon women and our planet, delving into the universal undercurrent of ecological anxiety in the face of such toxicity, and the personal experience of being a new mother concerned about the future her child will face. Hi, Paola. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Alex. So I'd like to start this interview by asking about a certain descriptor uh, that is not mentioned in any of the copy regarding this body of work, but one that I think does encapsulate the collection. Um, two parts to this question. <laughs> Would you call this collection dystopian? And was there a conscious decision to not use that term when describing the work? That's a really good question. Um, there are dystopian Dystopian elements to the collection, I would say. Um, there definitely is a focus on sort of what what systems are, are crumbling and causing sort of ecological devastation to our world. So for an example, um, the story, So What If It's Supposed to Rain?, uh, we learn that air quality is such a huge concern that the rich are living in this air-domed community called The Nest. Um, in the story Among Chameleons and Other Shades, a couple's bound for a colony on Mars uh, because, among other things, you know, their lives are, are in a bit of flux. But among other things, Earth isn't such a great place to live. Um, there are, So there are definitely dystopic elements to it where there are crumbling systems. But I also like to think that dystopia doesn't necessarily characterize the mood of the works because I feel that they do bring hope. Um, so I'm thinking about the story, The Silent Grave of Birds, where we have a young boy, Gavin, 
um, who has witnessed, who has been part of the sort of toxic masculinity of bullying this other child mercilessly. And then now that he's a little older, he's also witnessed a sexual assault uh, perpetrated by his brother on his brother's girlfriend. And that's sort of tied in with um, the ecological devastation that these boys are wreaking on this this habitat. Like they go to this beach every day after school. It's not a great beach. <laughs> you don't want to go on vacation there. Um, but they're littering it with like their Doritos bags. And it's like, there's, these are like our flags. These, these show it belongs to us. And um, Gavin actually gets called out by this, by the girl he really likes, um, who is the president of the environmental club. And um, she sort of ties in his attitude of entitlement to um, what he's been doing in terms of his complicity in keeping the silence around the assault, as well as his complicity in bullying this other child. Um, and the whole idea at the end of the story is he actually comes to terms with realizing, I need to do something differently. Mm-hmm. The system that I'm working in, this patriarchal culture, this toxic masculinity that I've been a part of, it's not working. So he makes the decision to, to you know, do the right thing, not to give too many spoilers away. Um, but the idea is that there's hope. If we look at the mistakes of the past and if we recognize them, we can we can create other systems. Um, we can create other ways of being. So in in Mermaid Girls as well, um, there's a girl who who, you know, her mother grew a mermaid tail as a physical manifestation of all the boundaries placed on her in her marriage, which she eventually left. Um, and her sister, who's kind of boy crazy, is doing the same thing. Um, and she's, you know, she's very scared her sister's gonna grow this tail. And there's a moment where she looks at herself and says, if I go in that water, if I go after my sister, if I focus on this, I'm going to be in the same place mm-hmm. and I need to do something differently. So I don't think dystopia characterizes the mood of it necessarily, although there are dystopian elephants definitely throughout. So there are, apart from that, m- many other common threads in her body among animals, namely that the story center mostly around women and animals in the natural world. The way you work with the animalistic side of the stories often come in these uh, short asides describing the natural tendencies of creatures that coincide with the experiences of your characters. Um, and, and many of them do have this kind of David Attenboroughian style to them. Um, Love him. <laughs> how, much, how much did nature documentaries influence the collection at large? And then are we as readers of this collection in the same position as documentarians who can observe nature but not interfere with it? Um, so I don't know so much that watching documentaries um, really influenced me, but I I love I love animal facts. There's so many animal facts. Like I would go down these rabbit holes of animal facts. Um, and, you know, I used to have a climbing partner who was also a writer and we would go to the climbing gym together and we would just trade. So like one day we'd be like, did you know that um, female ferrets, if they're not bred, they die when they go into heat? Like what? That's ridiculous. I used to have ferrets. I'm really sad that fact didn't make it into the collection. Or like, did you know that like foxes, like female foxes, actually take care of each other's babies. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Didn't know that, right? There's the coolest animal fact I think was um, the Shrike bird, um, which I think I refer to as like metal as 
expletive. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, you can use all the oh, expletives here, don't worry. Um, yeah, there you go. Basically, because it's this bird that takes its kills and impales them on a tree and then, like, brings its mate, pr- prospective mate to binds, like, look what I did. <laughs> Do you think I can provide for you? Um, so... There's also a YouTube channel, so not necessarily a formal documentary, but uh, Z Frank One, and he's got mm-hmm. this sort of humorous twist on different animal facts. And so I definitely, I definitely marathoned that channel. <laughs> um, and I do think, as as readers and as humans, um, we are in a position where we shouldn't interfere too much in nature. Um, mm-hmm. We don't, we don't necessarily know what we're doing, and when people do interfere. It often goes badly. <laughs> um, so you know, in terms of in terms of interfering with sort of natural processes and like controlling things, um, there's this the 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 boyfriend in uh, the story of when foxes dielectric. So he is the creator in this sort of twisted Pygmalion myth, um, and he creates this sentient sex robot Harmony, who's the main character of the story. And she and the wife of the boyfriend, the wife's name is Sophie, they bond over these nature documentaries. Um, Sophie is also her co-creator, but she thought, you know, Harmony would have different purposes. Um, And when they're watching these nature shows, they're coming to the realization that they will be okay if they can go along with the natural order of things instead of being controlled so much by the boyfriend. So Sophie's sort of on the fence about having raising her baby that she's pregnant with with this this man who she sort of feels like she doesn't know anymore and he's very controlling with harmony so when they're looking at these nature documentaries about foxes taking care of each other's young the harmony's thinking like you know we should maybe go with the natural flow and we should i i can i can help sophie i could take care of her i can be this person for her and we don't have to be in these man-made systems of control anymore a lot of the stories in this collection have ecological anxiety really sewn right into them. Um, I'm thinking specifically of Everyday Horror Show, in which a new mother suffers from PTSD through this lens of climate crisis. Um, there also may or may not be a ghost who is haunting her and her newborn. The question here being, why does the climate crisis feel so much like a haunting? So this one's actually quite personal to me. Um, Mm. When I wrote this collection, I was seriously thinking about whether or not to have children. You know, like a a lot of things happen, but the latter half of this collection is probably written during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, with the world literally on fire, like you'd look at these maps and be like, oh, that's burning and that's burning and that's burning. Like this is, this is not good. Um, The idea of, of having a child and bringing them into this world, there's a certain, there's a certain amount of guilt that comes with mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And to me, I I feel like guilt is a haunting emotion that it is there when, you know, it's, it's the dark, it's the thing that goes bump in the night. It's not letting you sleep. It's, it's, you know, this terrifying shapes and, and things that you're, you're trying not to picture but they're there and it's always sort of this fear for the future. So in everyday horror show, the mother experiences the postpartum anxiety, not, not, I don't know so much PTSD, but postpartum anxiety as a haunting as like this poltergeist. And she's, she's sitting there like, I'm having this baby. 
Um, and along with all the anxieties and sleeplessness of new motherhood, she's she's feeling like, what have I done? What kind of world have I brought this kid into where there there is a horror show happening? We are mm-hmm. in a moment where things could get very horrifying um, for humanity. <laughs> One of the images that kept coming back and back to me is like the the these sea turtles that mistake plastic bags for jellyfish. And that's mentioned a mm-hmm. lot in Everyday Horror Show. And it's sort of this, this entrapment, like the, the strangulation. And there's also in, in The Silent Grave of Birds, when they're talking about the damage done on the beach, it's like these, these birds who are eating plastic and plastic is in their guts and they're, they're going to die or they're going to get choked by the six-pack uh, beer holders that people are leaving mm-hmm. there. So our everyday is fraught with these objects that we we essentially create the horror show out of. Um, you know, we're you know, but and it's small things, and you know, we we all do them, um, and we might not always necessarily think about the impact they're having, but we create our own horror show. We create our own haunting. That's what lets you know the ghosts come in and move these these terrifying plastic bags or become hair in our drains that, you know, we're taking too long when we shower and things like that. In the story Cobwebs, uh, a woman turns herself into a spider as she and her partner contemplate having children, um, which I think is kind of a great jumping off point of what we just talked about. Um, a quote towards the end of that story, she asked him to admire the artistic handiwork of her spinnerets. She had wanted to tell him she could share the patch of weaving in the corner, that they could still have a life together if only he would understand. So admittedly, it I feel like it took me just a tick too long to realize what was happening in this story. But when it clicked, like it clicked good. Um, I, I would imagine you also have more to say on this. So what does motherhood do to a woman as an artist? Oh, this is a long one. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's unpack. Let's unpack this. <sighs> yes. So having a 22-month-old, um, I, I can safely say that motherhood makes being an artist challenging. Like, mm-hmm. so very, very challenging. Because as an artist, you're used to being able to be in your own mind, in your own space, Um and when you have a child who wants to play with ducks for the umpteenth time that day, um, you're not you're not thinking about these grand, wonderful things anymore. You're like, oh my god, are we seriously still talking about how the duck is red? Like, I just did this for 15 minutes. I, I can't. I can't. Like, this is enough. I love my son. I love my son dearly. Um, I really do. Um, but it is very hard to find the mental space, even when you have certain blocks of time, and that's not even talking about trying to find the time, mm-hmm. to really sort of sit with the product that you're making, the the story, the art that you're making. So in Cobwebs, um, she's she's a visual artist. Um, I tend not to like writing about writers because I'm like, well, that's too close, but I'm just going <laughs> to be like photographer, or visual artist. Yeah, let's just drop some musicians in there, film person, we're good. Um, so a lot of my women in this book are artists. Um, the woman in Cobwebs is Lil, who's in So What If It's Supposed to Rain. She's an ex-wildlife photographer mm-hmm. um, who, you know, was so dedicated to her craft that she was like, you know, taking her kid out 
in a van and they were wearing respirators and they were traveling around for a summer trying to document the last of certain insect species before they all went extinct. Um, and these women are wrestling, I think, with the idea that having children is supposed to be fulfillment in and of itself. Mm. And they found self-fulfillment elsewhere. They found it in their mm -hmm. art, whether it's photography, whether it's visual art, whether it's writing or film. They know what it is to feel fulfilled. And then when they have a child, they're thinking, well, am I doing this wrong? Because mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not feeling this fulfillment thing so much. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. It's not, I, again, you can love your child dearly and you can love them so much. And, but it can also be a challenge to be around them day in and day out in terms of spending monotony, like, you know, doing very monotonous child-centered activities. Like there's only so many times you can watch your kid, like put a magnet on the fridge and take it off and put it on the fridge again and take it off and put it on the fridge. Again. And you're like, oh, we're still doing this. And it's been half an hour. Okay. All right. This is my night now. Um, instead of, you know, creating your art. So I think to, I mean, there's always a burden. It's, it's changed a lot. And I have a fantastic, fantastic husband and partner who's definitely an equal mm -hmm. parent. Um, but there is still like, Societally, there's a burden placed on women to be the ultimate caregivers. Like even even when we go to the park, I notice it as a family. You know, like if there's a dad on his phone, wow, what a great dad! He's so involved. Um, if there's a mom on her phone, it's like wow, she's a terrible mom. She's not watching her kids. <laughs> um, so there's definitely a double standard where women mm -hmm. are expected to put children at the center of their world, and that becomes very challenging if the women are also artists because art is is so fundamental to their identity and who they are as a person. So there is a, a little video teaser on your Instagram uh, about the book and you say flat outright, these are fairy tales. Um, I recently actually spoke to Mona Awad for her latest novel, Rouge, which is this retelling of Snow White and contains many kind of VHS references to the Disney movies that we were all raised on. You do something similar with a lot of the stories in her body among animals, uh, but you also use a lot of horror movie references. A quote from The Silent Grave of Birds, I felt like in a nightmare on Elm Street when Freddy gets you in the loneliest of your dreams and no one can hear you because there isn't any way to share the fear inside you. I want to hear your thoughts on this proposal. Um, can horror stories or horror movies maybe more specifically themselves be a type of fairy tale? Yes, hundred times yes. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna start with why I think fairy tales are actually horror stories. Um, oh, so I'm gonna go at it in a, in a slightly different <laughs> direction. So fairy tales, when we go back, I'm gonna talk a lot about the Brothers Grimm, um, just mm -hmm. because that's sort of the canon I'm most familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, so forget Disney. Disney just like made everything happy. Like forget that ending. Yeah. Um, yeah. When we go back to the original tales, these are these are really scary things. I mean, Hansel and Gretel is about child abandonment and, mm -hmm. and cannibalism. You know, <laughs> like it's, you know, that, that's a horror movie right there. Um, but more than that, we're talking about the deepest fears ingrained in us and horror movies and fairy tales work in the same way that way. I think when we're, when we're talking about fairy tales, our childhood fears are all over these fairy tales. There's parental abandonment, parental death, being lost and alone in the dark in the woods, mm -hmm. um, you know, not having anybody to love you or care for you, 
not not having anything to eat. Hansel and Gretel are hungry, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and these these deep deep fears are the fears of childhood. Um, you know, they're they're used to warn children, tell them not to be scared. And then when we go into horror movies, we have the fears that carry us through our adolescence and our adulthood, right? I mean, there, you know, there's everything from sort of the monster movies, right? Where you have the fear of this outsider, um, which, you know, her body among animals takes into account, like cobwebs, the woman turning into a spider, her husband hates spiders. He's revolted mm-hmm. by them. He's trying yeah. not to be revolted, but he really is. Um, so the whole idea of the other being the monster figure is like well documented in horror movies. Um, and then we move into sort of like, you know, we have these like, uh, like the Stephen Kingish '80s things. Like you know, Stranger Things is a great example of sort of that that '80s vibe. Um, the Silent Grave of Birds and Her Body Among Animals definitely is super inspired by that. Um, and you've got this sort of, this this tiny, this world of, of children becoming adolescents and their particular fears where they're not quite realizing them yet, but they're they're becoming the fears of the adult world. So again, in, in Silent Grave of Birds, we have a group of boys who is dealing with like, how do I be a man, really? without Mm -hmm. having and like not be a toxic Mm -hmm. male, not engage in that. Um, And so they've got this childhood thing of like, this is what I used to do in my childhood. I used to bully this other kid. Um, How do I then grow up into the world? And what, what am I doing? Am I enacting violence on this, this girl? And am I going to stay silent in the face of it? And that's all punctuated by the haunting of this, these like super creepy dolls. So they find like a grave quote unquote, and it's got, dolls in it and then the dolls start moving by themselves Mm -hmm. so i do think that horror movies and fairy tales are both there to show society its its deepest fears um and i think honestly at the root of it they're they're kind of the same (laughs) no that was just a great point that you started with too especially with the grim stuff like i remember being i don't know probably 11 or 12 ish And I had asked for Christmas, like this big hardcover annotated Brothers Grimm, like original stories. And I remember reading them and going like, oh, yeah, there is a lot more blood and like bodily fluid (laughs) in these. In Cinderella, the sisters like are chopping their pieces of their feet off to fit into the shoes. The birds pluck their eyeballs out in the end and like. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I, so I, I definitely that had that back. that hardcover. Yeah, I mm-hmm. mm, had a copy of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> In uh, A Trick of the Dark, you write, quote, Primates don't do well alone, without touch. They will cuddle with a terry cloth dummy that is soft but cannot feed them or meet all their needs. When it comes to primates, it is scarier to not have something to cling to for warmth, even if it isn't real. You're exploring this in the context of a woman who is dealing with an abusive partner. Uh, The question here, why are we as primal creatures willing to suffer for the warmth of a terry cloth? (sighs) If I had that answer, I honestly think I would be like incredibly rich because that's, I think, 
the whole idea of knowing when to get out of a bad relationship. I mean, mm -hmm. from a psychological perspective, so like my, my undergraduate was in psychology um, and like I'm referring there to the classic attachment study that mm -hmm. Harlow did with, with monkeys, rhesus monkeys. Um, and it was like, they would, he would take them from their mothers, incredibly cruel actually study um, and place them either with a wire dummy of a mother that could, that had milk or, uh, and they also had access to a cloth dummy that had no milk, but they tried to spend more time with the cloth dummy as much as they could because they, they needed that intensity of, of cuddle time. And like, there's mm -hmm. like lots of research on human infants about how they need to be cuddled. They need to be held. And I think part of it is just, we're biologically wired to be social creatures. We need a society to live. If, if we look at young children, if nobody's taking care of you, if you don't have a social people, <laughs> like if you, mm -hmm. if you're not in a group, you're dead. Like yeah. there's no question about it. So I think that obviously starts very early in our lives. Um, and then, you know, there's lots of, of research about how attachment that we learn early in our lives carries on to attachment into adulthood. And in a trick of the dark, um, you know, I was really looking at when and how, um, it, how, what it feels like to be in the midst of an abusive relationship and sort of the, the gaslighting that happens that, um, you know, partners can change. Um, my, my cousin was going through, um, a really hard time with her relationship at that time. And that was part of where the inspiration came from. Hmm. Um, and I wanted to sort of think about, you know, when the, the reason the partner turns into a dragon is because the dragon is this terrifying and monstrous creature. And then there's this other side where he's, he's the man that she loves. So mm -hmm. how do you reconcile those two things? And I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Um, I think there's, you know, there's a reason where it's, there's again, research that shows it takes women predominantly who are in abusive relationships like 12 times to actually finally leave um, because we, we do keep going back or people can go back to the, the comfort of knowing there's someone there for them. There's someone who quote unquote loves them, even though it's not love or a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's very hard to be in the situation when you're looking at a dragon and you're trying to see the, the person you love behind them and not seeing them anymore, but also being scared that um, if you leave, there's, there's nobody. Kind of jumping off of that as well. Um, it, it, a trick of the dark is the only collection that deals in mythological animals. Um, her husband turns into a dragon or a lizard man or a swamp creature. Um, at the same time, uh, abuse is such a very real and palpable and direct experience for so many people. Why choose to examine that through the context of creatures that don't exist? Is that gaslighting? Uh, so I have to think about whether I would call it gaslighting. But the mm. reason th the partner is a dragon is because a dragon is impossible. And it's not supposed to exist and it's not supposed to happen. 
And there are pieces, there are quotes later on where she's like, well, if it was a, a bear, I'd know what to do. Right. You know, what to, there's like advice on the Internet. You'd be like, how do I survive a bear attack? If it's an alligator, if it's a lion, I know I know what to do. I mean, like nobody wants to be attacked by those animals, but they are they exist in the real world. And you can find advice, bad or not, about how to deal with it. When there's a dragon, dragons are are, are myth. They're rumors, mm -hmm. um, you know, and the the this that story is interspersed with rumors about lizard men. So like, you know, there's there's a, a myth about one on Thetis Lake and like what he looks like and who's seen him and is he real? Is he not? Um, you know, like um, there's one in Charles Orr, like there's, there's photographic evidence, but is it real? Is it not? And the whole idea of, is it real? Is it not? Yes. That, that portion of it can be gaslighting where it's like, you're sitting there like, is this really happening? Mm. Like, did that, that just come out of the, the mouth of somebody that I love? Did mm. that really happen? Did, did I get hurt by somebody I love? And, um, you know, people have a really, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly difficult thing to reckon with, to see that, to be in that situation. And it's, I think, you know, just from having seen in my own life, having seen women go through this, um, I think it's easier to think this is an impossible creature and this mm. is not a thing that could possibly happen then sometimes it is to deal with the reality that this happened in your real life and in reality. So the idea of making it a mythological creature, of making the partner turn into a mythological creature was very, very um, strategic. So Her Body Among Animals is mostly a collection, I say mostly here, uh, a collection centered on female characters. But you do have a couple instances where male characters are more in focus. You know, specifically you have Gavin in The Silent Grave of Birds, young man kind of grappling with whether or not to go against his brother and his friends. Um, in Pandora, though, you do something that I thought was especially unexpected. As the female narrator lies dying at a bus stop, she considers the act of violence that brought her there that of a man purposefully driving onto a pedestrian sidewalk to run over the woman he sees there. The unexpected bit is the sympathy that the narrator has for him. Um, something I don't think a lot of people necessarily want to consider or sit with when we talk about these kinds of violent acts. Why make the decision to explore that character? Um, I think that really has to do with sort of, um, the work I do, um, I've, I've been, um, I'm, I'm a teacher and what I tend to do is I tend to work in alternative programs. And, um, for the first half of my teaching career before, before this, I was doing like sort of like residential work and like social service work. Um, and we would get, you know, you would see cases of, of young men, um, who are, you know, they, they have these violent tendencies. They have these tendencies that they're going to hurt other people. Um, and in order to work with them and in order to engage with them, you have to find some kind of ability to see the potential for humanness. And mm -hmm. obviously that's not condoning any of the actions that mm -hmm. they take. Um, they're horrific and, you know, shouldn't be repeated. But 
when I think when we can see what might have led somebody to go down a path that is so tragic for, you know, everybody, uh, the victims, and then this person, like, what are they doing? Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's easier than to sometimes prevent um, or not, or to at least be aware of sort of the signs early on where you can you can actually intercede. So I mean, Pandora is based on um, the Alex Manassian um, slaughter in Toronto, yeah. and uh, there was a lot of you know there were some interviews with his mother being like, I didn't know this could happen, and it's interesting to think about it, as a mother myself, right? Like there are family members of these people who who have obviously seen other sides of them and everybody has sides of them that we don't see in their most horrific action. Mm -hmm. So I think I was just trying to look at that aspect there. And jumping off of that and and maybe bringing in uh, Gavin uh, into the conversation as well. You do have sympathy for the male characters in this collection. Is that something you struggle with writing And then I might also flip it to get your opinion on whether or not you think male authors have trouble writing sympathetic female protagonists. Um, So I don't find it a stretch to to have sympathy for male characters. Um, I think, again, everybody has different facets and like fiction would be quite boring, quite honestly, if we didn't consider complex characters. Um, and as well, if we're going to talk about problems like toxic masculinity, um, the, the, you know, it's not going to work very well if, if the, if men and young boys don't want to engage in behavior that isn't that, Mm -hmm. um, so understanding where they're coming from and meeting them where they are is a way to, to teach. And again, I'm a teacher, so I have that, that lens of trying to meet people where they are and then bring them to a different place. Hopefully it with Gavin in the silent grave of birds, um, his teacher ends up being, um, the, the girl that he's interested in, um, who kind of inspires him to do better. Cause I mean, he's, he's hanging out with his, his older brother and his older brother's friends and they're drinking and they're smoking and they're, they're, they're doing a lot of things that like aren't super productive. Right. And then they get into like really nasty territory, um, where they're sharing like, inappropriate images of this girl and that like, you know, is destroying her life. Um, and it's really not a good situation for him to be in, but when he like, you know, he'll, he'll try to give himself detention because he can't look like he wants to be there, but he'll try to give himself detention to go to the environmental club meetings. So where he's learning that there, there's other possibilities, there's ways of change and giving people, giving young men, ways that they can change and can do better, I think is really important in terms of addressing issues like toxic mm-hmm. masculinity and, and people mm-hmm. in general, and in terms of addressing issues like the climate crisis, we need to give people options. In terms of male authors having trouble seeing um, female characters sympathetically, I honestly think that it really depends on the author. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, I don't have a blanket statement on that one because like, if, if you look at like people like Hemingway, yeah, 
<laughs> I, I'm going to slag Hemingway for a little bit now. Um, no, I don't think he he really could get into the headspace of how women thought. Um, but there, there are wonderful authors who do. Um, and I think it, it doesn't matter so much the gender as long as you're willing to engage with the complexities of the person. Um, then you can write really rich and well-rounded characters with and and give nuance to them. So a question that I often ask writers of short stories is whether or not they would ever expand any of the stories in their arsenals into larger bodies of work. Um, I will also maybe say that I am a huge lover of short story collections and I don't always see the need for writers to expand their works, but I'm curious about your thoughts. Um, is there a particular story in this collection that you think could have a future as something more full-fledged, or is that not in line with the work you strive to create? Um, so I think there's two parts to that answer. <laughs> um, so mm -hmm. first of all, I tend to agree with you where I think short fiction is is very much its own beast. Like I'm working on a novel right now, and we'll get to that in a second. But um, short fiction allows me as a writer to really experiment with form and to really do things that would be like just boring in a novel and just untenable. Like I'm thinking of the underside of a wing. So having this sort of third person perspective of like a, a, a grad student who's living with depression, which manifests as an albatross around her neck. Mm -hmm. um, it's very much about how that story sounds and like having that, that third person disassociative, like an albatross is doing this, but a girl is doing this that would get old really fast if you had to read more than a short story length page of it. Um, so I think in terms of form, it's it's much easier to go with an idea and then a formal technique for short fiction um, than it is for a novel. So, but in answer to your question about whether you see any, if I see any of these stories specifically becoming something bigger, um, I don't, the characters themselves will not be. So that the stories in their own form are their own thing. But um, the last story I wrote in this collection was, so what if it's supposed to rain? And I've definitely taken the idea of the air domes and the air quality um, and sort of transposed that into um, the novel that I'm working on now. Mm. And I've also taken sort of the uh, idea of the protagonist being this, this wildlife photographer who's a mother um, and used that as a jumping off point for um, sort of this exploration of an, like um, a mother-daughter interaction where they're both living with depression in a world where um, everybody is taking biochemical packages to enhance themselves <laughs> and like take away depression and anxiety and everything else as the world is burning. So um, yes, in that sense, there's definitely inspiration from these stories and ideas from these stories that are making it into a longer form, but no, in the sense that it's not going to be, it, some elements might be recognizable, but I think mm. by the time I'm done with it, it's not going to be anywhere close to these stories. So what you're saying is two different beasts entirely. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even in the writing of them, when I write a short story, I'm definitely one of those those pantsers where I'm like, oh, I have this conceptual idea. And like, 
I'll like, you know, write the first like couple, like third of it and be like, oh yeah, this sounds cool. Let's keep going. Novel. I'm like, oh, we got to plan this. (laughs) That needs to happen. (laughs) The title of your book is similar to that of Carmen Maria Machado's debut collection of short stories, Her Body and Other Parties. Um, I'm I'm not going to ask whether or not anybody's asked this before, because I don't want to know. Um, <laughs> your work also does share a lot of similar themes with Machado's collection, female protagonists, hauntings, struggles with mental health. I do want to ask if the title is a direct reference to Machado's collection or if her writing had any influence on yours. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> huge fan of Machado's um yeah I like to think the title is is like a homage mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit at least I hope it is um and yeah I structurally I think she does things that are so interesting formally like so interesting um the the story oh the one I'm thinking about with the girls who um become like invisible and, and go into their prom dresses. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. That's definitely um, stuck in my mind in terms of the invisibility. Some of these women take on in this collection. Mm-hmm. So like the, the narrator of a trick of the dark, we don't learn her name. Um, she is an mm-hmm. invisible woman and the, the cobwebs, the you know because she shrinks down to the size of a spider she becomes more invisible in her relationship and even um finding houdini which is mm. not necessarily a speculative story but has um some revenge speculative animal elements to it <laughs> um the narrator is a a a a woman who is teaching in Korea and she gets into this sort of pseudo relationship with another teacher who then ghosts her basically. And she mm-hmm. is, she's invisible to him throughout, which is why when she finally enacts her revenge at the end, and I'm not going to spoil it, um, it's kind of like a little bite <laughs> that is shows her visibility. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think Machado's work is very, uh, genre pushing and I appreciated mm. um how she she uses horror conventions in a literary sense. I think we need more of stuff like that. <laughs> I think we do too. I, and again, that is why I was really really pleased when I picked up your book because it's kind of it, I I would almost call it a companion piece to to oh. that collection as well. Oh. That's that's a big compliment. <laughs> no, I feel like it's one of those things where ever since I read that book, like it, you're, you know, chasing the dragon, quote unquote, <laughs> and like, and this one brought me right back there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so on a final note here, um, your bio starts with Paola Ferrante is a writer living with depression. Why do you think it's important for people to know this about you before anything else? Um, I think it's, I mean, I started, I I don't know if it's before everything else, but I think it's important for people to know in the context of this book, um, because it does Mm. deal with mental health. Um, A lot of it, some of the stories are quite personal to me. Like the underside of a wing is, 
my story of dropping out of grad school in clinical psychology because mm-hmm. of untreated mental health issues and what it felt like to be sitting in that that the not good chair at the university across from the professor and the the really lovely yellow leather chair and the professor saying well you're in academic jeopardy and I'm I'm sobbing and saying um I don't know what I could do and I remember um she looked at me and she said, well, we don't have that kind of relationship, but student services is over there. Oof. So I was like, the, it, it calls to mind the the pressures, I think, that people and especially women face to um, to keep it together. And when sometimes it's, I, I want people to know that it's okay to not be okay and mm-hmm. to tell people that. Um, and I think sometimes the more successful you are in your life, the harder it is for people to understand that this can still be something that you struggle with. Um, so I really wanted people to know that because I do talk about these things and I want it to come from a place of, of this is my experience and I want you to understand that this is where I'm writing from. Paula, thank you so much for the stories that you've written, uh, for taking time to talk with me today. Um, I can't wait to hand sell the hell out of this book. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Amazing. And thank you, listeners. <laughs> <laughs>